Now, I'm delighted to, uh, that we have today David Wengro, who's a British archaeologist and a professor of comparative archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology at University College London, and my colleague Alpa, Alpa Shah, who is a professor at the Department of Anthropology here at LSE, and also a convener of the Global Economies of Care research theme at the International Inequalities Institute, um, which, I, which I chair. Uh, the two speakers have uh, uh, distinguished careers and multiple achievements. And if I were to describe their CVs, we would take too long. So I'll just leave the introduction at that. Um, I'll turn to them in a moment. Let me just say the event will run for um, an hour and a half or uh, an hour and 25 minutes from now until 7.30 p.m. London time. Our, our speakers will uh, have a conversation for about 45 to 50 minutes. And then, of course, as usual, there'll be a chance for you all to ask questions, for the audience to pose questions in the final 30 minutes of the event. We ask that you please do so using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. Uh, and please state your affiliation uh, and name um, uh, uh, when, you, when you do that. Um, our next public event, just to say, uh, to be held here at the III, is going to be called Social Policy, a Critical and Intersectional Analysis. And it'll take place uh, next Thursday, the 21st of October at 6 p.m. There's more information at the III website. Finally, if you're, uh, we do have BSL interpretation, as you can see. And if you're using that uh, and you'd like to pin the interpreter, um, you could do that so that you don't, uh, don't lose them uh, as the screens move around. Uh, for now, I just want to hand over to Alpa uh, and, and, and David, and I hope you'll uh, enjoy the event. Thanks very much. Over to you, Alpa. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much, Chico, uh, for this introduction and for sharing our event today. Uh, it's very hard to um, come to terms with the fact that we are doing this without David Graeber, but also at the same time, quite amazing that we're here at all. So many things that could have derailed the dawn of everything. Over the last few years, um, I had seen various parts of the manuscripts it developed, but it was on August uh, the 12th last year that I got an email with the entire script from David Graeber. He said, he said, so here it is, actually, I'm in Berlin, but only maybe three-fifths better. Honestly, can't figure this thing out. How about yourself? David was clearly very sick at the time and had been for a while complaining about a soapy taste in his mouth, pins and needles, feelings in his hands and, and, and his feet. And, but none of us knew that within a few weeks he would be gone. Looking back now, I wonder whether he knew or he had some idea of what was to come. He was clearly quite worried. I guess, you know, we'll never know. But so characteristic of David, David being David, he made sure he would leave us with this, with a parting gift. A gift which is full of life, which transcends our own mortality, that gives us new life a gift that he has been gestating with David Wengro over the last decade. David Wengro, I remember how excited David was, you know, when he first met you. It was more than a decade ago. It was a cold February night and he said, Alpa, Alpa, come, come, you've really got to come. You've got to come and meet David, David Wengro. 
And I said to him, David, come on, I'm, I should be hibernating right now. You know, I was seeing myself as living out some of the seasonality arguments that are made in the dawn of everything and to which we will return later today. But it was uh, David's birthday. So I traipsed off to Notting Hill and, you know, meet we did. <laughs> Over time, I understood the basis of David's excitement. In you, David, uh, he had found the perfect partner to rethink our past in order to reimagine the future. A match that was going to wed uh, archaeology and anthropology that was going to give us infinitely new possibilities and hopefully new communities to rewrite history, to make history. David of Magic and David of Monsters, you became for me. <laughs> I watched you play and grow the script. There were many things, many, many things in the way, but persevere, you did, both of you in very different ways. I know, David, David Wengro, you it's not been easy at all to carry this final script through to publication, nor be here today without David Graeber beside you. So thank you. Um, thank you, I see, I guess, my role today as a, being a kind of medium, a medium who can hopefully help the two Davids draw out the monstrosity that has been cast of our past and the magic that has been hidden in plain sight. The dawn of everything really is a bomb full of gems, a bomb that blows up the evolutionary myths of the past that we have been fed and all reproduced that human societies have grow, grown, you know, from hunter-gatherer bands progressively to tribes, chiefdoms and states or some other such teleological narrative, and that we're all the more sophisticated and civilized for this kind of trajectory. It's a bomb that explodes such myths and gives us new ones, more hopeful, more interesting and more creative ones. And, uh, yeah, there are many little, little jewels all along the way uh, those, I think, will have to be kept for the reader to, to discover, you know, the reader who dives into this, it is big, the book, 700 pages, whose magic we will only be able to allude to in our brief conversation today. So, um, yeah, without any further ado, we must begin. Uh, and begin, we must, with inequality, I think. This is an event that's hosted by the Anthropology Department and the International Inequalities Institute. And, you know, all those years ago, uh, when you began, you were, in fact, going to write a book about inequality. What happened, David? That's right. That's right. And thank you, Alpa. I mean, as I see it, you're, I'm hoping you can hear me, by the way. It's always worth checking. Um, I'm audible. Um, yeah, as I see it, you're really just continuing the role that you always have with this book because you are one of the very, very, very few people who was there right from the beginning, over 10 years ago when it started to come into, into focus and, and you've been there all along. So I'm, I'm really grateful and happy that we can talk about it. Now, um, you're absolutely right. Actually, uh, initially what we planned to do was write a small book, a small book on the origins of social inequality and uh, over a decade later we've ended up say, writing quite a big book which is explicitly not about 
the origins of social inequality, actually, as you know, in one of the early chapters, we delve down into why anyone would have thought that was a particularly good question to ask in the first place. If you're looking at the broad sweep of human history, the origins of social inequality, because it, <clears throat> it already seems to assume so much. It assumes there was a time before inequality and then something happened to change that all. So the rest of history becomes a matter of trying to figure out what was that thing or things, which as we discover along the way is maybe not the best way of framing a broad approach to, um, to history. But I mean, actually what spurred us to write the book initially, I guess, was something much simpler, which is that we could see there was a, a lot of other literature out there in the world making assertions about this broad sweep of human history that were basically just wrong, or at least half a century out of date. Many of them also go on to reflect on the political implications of this wrong, out-of-date story, um, which turn out to be a bit worrying. For example, the idea that for most of our history, as you mentioned, uh, our species lived in these tiny egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers. That's how we originated. And then somehow we fell from this original state of grace into inequality. Yeah. Um, it's not true, uh, or that the origin of cities inevitably leads to uh, the state. Again, it's not true, but there's some very deeply rooted assumptions there about how human societies uh, develop. Yeah, you have these, um, you know, at the foundations of the book, there are these two great men, you know, whose influential origins mm. you tear down. There's, on the one hand, Rousseau, who claimed that we were once noble savages, and the other um, is Hobbes, you know, who is basically saying that we would all kill each other if we could, who said, if we're left to our own devices, make sure, you know, right. that we make sure that life is nasty, brutish, and short. I mean, you, yeah, you know, you call the people who reproduce them Hobbesian hawks and Rousseauian doves. Tell us, tell us more about. Well, it's true. We have a little bit of fun at the start of the book, um, slightly at the expense of the new, new versions of Hobbes and Rousseau. Remember, we're going back centuries here. I mean, both of these people, Hobbes uh, wrote his book, Leviathan, founding text of modern political theory, came out in 1651, I think, and then about a century later, uh, 1754, Rousseau pens his second discourse, the discourse on the origins of social inequality. These are both um, state of nature theorists. What that means is they allow themselves to speculate about the original form of humanity. What were people like in, in the earliest uh, days? Um, and by the way, they're both completely upfront, especially Rousseau uh, writes very clearly, you know, I'm making this up. This is not to be taken as fact. It's not science. It's not the basis for reconstructing anything that really happened. These are essentially parables, you know, they're fables. Although strangely, uh, as you've mentioned, um, their fate in the hands of modern social scientists uh, has been quite the opposite. They have been taken as the basis of real studies of how human societies uh, evolved. But they do give us these two completely different juxtaposed notions of what that state of nature might have been. Actually, Rousseau's is, is much weirder than most people uh, realise. Uh, we don't even start out in bands. Uh, humanity is supposed to start out almost as a bunch of 
completely isolated individuals uh, like wandering through the forest, living off wild berries and resources, very few if any uh, material possessions, but very happy in this state of complete sort of naivety. And then uh, we take up farming, uh, which brings along with it private property and a division of labor. And with the division of labor, this ushers in government to protect the property and and we know the rest of the story and it's really all a parable you know it's meant to illustrate his famous point man is born free but look everywhere he's in chains that's right and 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 Hobbes as, as you mentioned sort of does the opposite but actually whichever of these um myths let's just call them myths uh, that's what they are uh, whichever of these myths you go for uh, you kind of end up in the same place so in the modern retellings, uh, small means simple and egalitarian, if you like Rousseau. Big, big society means complex, but also hierarchical. So the obvious conclusion uh, of the, the story then is that because there are, what, 8 billion people on the planet, um, we are effectively uh, stuck. You know, we're fated to live with these really very radical levels of, of inequality. Um, just as a sort of side effect of living in big, sophisticated uh, societies. And yes, you know, we can fiddle around the edges and adjust tax regimes and that sort of thing. But structurally, there's not really much to be done, which if you think about it at the present time, um, is is quite a concerning uh, conclusion. Fortunately, though, uh, modern science, archaeology, anthropology, uh, show us that uh, it's not true. Neither of the stories are, are in fact, uh, even remotely correct. In fact, they're, they're both almost uh, entirely wrong. And I assume we'll go into that. But maybe, maybe we should also talk about why we got it all so wrong uh, in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to, I want to come, come on to, um, you know, the evidence that you reveal. And, um, but, 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 but let's go before that to another person who, who you who you bring up um another man who's crucial to your story right and and he's the wonderful Kandyarank, this the great chief of the Wendant 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 uh you know Wendant. the French who called him a rat too and I remember back in uh, 2018 you know when um we were in the senior dining room at the LSC talking after the usual Friday <laughs> morning anthropology seminar at which we will pay tribute to David Graeber's work this term you know back then David was like he just couldn't stop himself talking with such excitement to anybody who was ready to listen about this indigenous statesman called Kanyarank who was so utterly brilliant and who according to David was in fact responsible for much of the enlightenment discourse on freedom and in- in- equality and you know tell us about Kanyarank why is he so important? Um, oh, and, and, and actually David's not the first to say it I mean there are uh, indigenous historians like George Sui who's a Canadian historian himself of Wendell uh, heritage um have been writing about this stuff for, for years but it's i think it's quite telling um what does and doesn't get um uh, airtime in the academy so in a way in these parts of the book really um we're, we're standing on the shoulders uh, of other scholars whose work uh, perhaps hasn't been given the attention it deserves um so this is us delving down into exactly that business of what is the origins of the question origins of social inequality and actually 
if you look at what enlightenment thinkers like Rousseau actually said themselves uh, about where they got their ideas about freedom and equality, they themselves often point to the Americas and particularly to the eastern woodlands region of, of North America. Uh, now, there is a problem here, and it's basically a problem of historiography. So most modern historians of ideas say no, they dismiss this. It can't possibly be true that indigenous thinkers and indigenous societies had such great impact on European thought. Uh, in the 18th century. So uh, there's a debate here uh, to be had. Basically, what we have are these travellers' accounts and missionary relations, and they often include these lengthy dialogues with what's usually referred to by the European author as some sort of wise savage. And in fact, those dialogues do revolve precisely around ideas that became central to enlightenment thought, political freedoms, religious freedoms. But it's always assumed these days that the so-called savage is a fabrication of the European author, kind of sock puppet, who the European has made up in order to express opinions that might get him into trouble about deism or sexual mores or marriage or whatever it may be. So they put them in the mouth of this exotic other figure. And it's important to stress just how popular these dialogues were in Europe at the time. I mean, they were translated into every language you can think of. There were these endless uh, theatrical productions that ran as long as Cats and Les Miserables, dramatizing um, you know, the, um, the content. Um, but as I mentioned, what's intriguing is that other modern scholars, including indigenous scholars, have gone back to the same early colonial sources and reached very different conclusions. So not only uh, in some cases was the so-called savage interlocutor a real person, but we can actually even identify who it was. And Kandiaronk, you mentioned, is really the key figure here. He's a 17th century uh, Wendat statesman. He was famous in that region of the Great Lakes in what's today Canada as a brilliant uh, orator and a debater. He was also a very uh, um, seasoned uh, warrior, and he was one of the key figures, one of the signatories in the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701. Uh, anyway, we have various accounts that corroborate that in the, the late 17th century, he was very frequently invited as a kind of honoured guest to the table of the then governor of that part of what the Europeans called New France, a man called Frontignac, who also fancied himself as a bit of a debater. And it's clear that they had a sort of proto-enlightenment salon uh, going there where Candiaronk would be invited to play the role of the rational sceptic, sort of peering in at all the peculiarities of French society. Now, remember, this is the... Uh, reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King, there are lots of peculiar things for him to comment on and disparage and critique. So he really lays in, in particular, he lays into the, the French and the Europeans for their constant sort of groveling and obsequiousness, you know, deference and hierarchy, and you care so much about ranks, the obsession with money, uh, but particularly also just the lack of generosity the fact that, you know, European cities are riddled with hungry and homeless people. All these things seem to have been quite alien uh, to, to indigenous societies at, at that time in that region. Um, and it's through the writings of another Frenchman, the Baron Lahontan, who was a close associate of Candiaronk and of the, the French governor at that time. He was fluent in Algonquin. 
and Wendat uh, languages. And he documents these conversations, uh, cut a long story short. He, he puts books out there uh, right at the, the opening of the 18th century, and they become bestsellers. They spread like wildfire, these curious dialogues with a savage who has traveled. And every major Enlightenment writer, Voltaire, Diderot, Montesquieu, they will do imitations. So they'll switch. You know, sometimes it's a half Huron or a Tahitian or a Persian uh, or Peruvian, uh, but the words and the contents and the sentiments are still, in essence, Kandirang. And the most important one for us um, was Madame Graffini's uh, Letters uh, of a Peruvian Woman. It's published right in the middle of the 18th century, where she puts the indigenous critique of European society into the mouth of an Inca princess called Zelia. And she shows a draft to her friend, much like David showed a draft to you of our book. Um, but um, the friend in this case is Anne-Robert Thiergaud, who is really the inventor of our modern notion of social evolution. Uh, and he, he doesn't react very well. He says, yes, you know, freedom, equality, it's all very admirable. You know, we couldn't possibly be against these sort of things. But isn't this just a bit dangerous you know it's a little bit subversive and um maybe uh Tilgo suggests maybe the reason that indigenous americans have these freedoms is not because they're superior it's because they're inferior and by that he meant in particular technologically inferior inferior in terms of material progress and within a few years he's written up what become his hugely influential works on universal history, where he presents for the first time uh, social evolution as we still know it today. The whole of humanity divided up and classified according to modes of livelihood, hunters and gatherers, farmers, and eventually uh, urban commercial civilization. And crucially, uh, egalitarian societies are shoved down to the bottom rung of this new evolutionary uh, ladder. In other words, what we now think of as social evolution was first proposed as a direct reaction, a direct counter response to the indigenous critique of European society. That's where Kandiaronk is so fundamental to the story we tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating. It, it's let, let's go to some of the reinterpretation of the archaeological mm -hmm. record. You know, which is um, you, that you with you, know, you basically have the anthropological eye, the lens of an anthropologist. You know, looking at back at the archaeological rec record and reinterpreting this kind of evolutionary narrative. And you're making these like startling revelations all along the way. I mean, there's many, there's many highlights and there's no way we we're going to be able to cover everything today, but let's, um, let's talk give about, a a yeah, let's give us, yes, let's give our listeners, you know, let's, let's, let's give a flavor of, of what lies ahead. And the first thing I think is to turn to this idea of seasonal variations of social structures. You know, mm -hmm. you, you've, it's an old insight from anthropology, you know, you 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 draw on Marcel Morse and Henry Boucher's um, seasonal variations of the Eskimo 
and you basically apply it to the Paleolithic and other ages to show how human beings have been self-consciously experimenting with different social possibilities you know, the exactly. same communities yeah. going from hierarchical to egalitarian societies. I mean, there's, so, there's others that have you know, done the same. Edmund Leach's political systems of Highland Burma, which you don't cite that, but mm-hmm. there's, tell us more. I mean, tell us more. Why is this oscillation that anthropologists have long drawn oh. attention to so important to how we think about the archaeology? Okay, yes. I mean, so this this happened right at the beginning of our project, actually, when I was giving that lecture for the, the Royal Anthropological uh, Society okay. Institute, rather. Okay. Um, and it was one of the first things that really alerted us that we just need to break out of this Tilgo trap, this trap that Tilgo and Rousseau sort of laid for us, um, where, you know, it's just kind of assumed that before the invention of agriculture, people were somehow devoid of political imagination, you know, just kind of adapting to their environments or something. And it's still perfectly common for people with full academic credentials to say this sort of thing or say that, well, all hunter-gatherers can be divided into perhaps two or three basic types. But it's really beginning to look hopelessly reductionist. So just to give you a flavour of some of this material uh, that we present in the book, uh, we have, for example, in Ice Age Europe, these individuals who are buried like kings and queens, just absolutely suffused with regalia and material wealth. This is 30,000 years ago at a time when there's really no evidence for monarchy or states or anything like that. So what's going on there? Um, In the Americas, we've got these massive public arenas where hunter-gatherers gathered in their thousands, like Poverty Point, the site known as Poverty Point in Louisiana, about three and a half thousand years ago. So what's that all about? Uh, In the Middle East, we've got uh, Gobekli Tepe, where 10,000 years ago, there are non-agricultural hunter-gatherer societies erecting these massive stone temples, uh, apparently on a seasonal uh, basis. Um, And we also have ethno-historical accounts in the Americas on the West Coast of societies adopting slavery and then abolishing it Uh, and these are societies that have never practiced agriculture at any point in their known histories so the whole idea that hunting and gathering is a single mode of production with a handful of characteristics uh, is just starting to look really redundant so how to explain these things that we're seeing and this is where the seasonal variations that you mentioned come in Um, many societies uh, across the world Uh, Many of them hunter-gatherers, not all of them by any means, uh, uh, as you say, have alternated seasonally between entirely different social, political, legal, ethical systems. Often this follows patterns of aggregation, physical aggregation of people, and then dispersal linked to things like the migration of game or fish runs or Uh, annual nut harvests, whatever it may be. And the key thing here is that they apply the same logic to their political system. So, for example, with groups like the Inuit or the Plains Indians of North America, you could be living for part of the year in a society with strict rules governing the distribution of property and ownership, a society with chiefs who have real powers of command and coercion. But then the same society would flip up to a completely different set of ethical and political principles. So suddenly goods are shared out in a more communal manner. Chiefs uh, lose their coercive power and have to rely on persuading people and diplomacy. Actually, Claude Lévi-Strauss was probably the last person 
to write seriously about this kind of issue in relation to the Nambiquara of the Mato Grosso in uh, the Amazon rainforest. And then it kind of dropped out of people's thinking. But if you look at the sort of modern archaeological evidence we have today, how people were living in pre-agricultural times, this is exactly what you find is this kind of cornucopia or a sort of encyclopedia of social possibilities. Uh, it's, it's about as far away as you can possibly imagine from this sort of drab idea that everyone is living all the time in egalitarian bands of, of hunter-gatherers. Um, yeah, you also have this, um, apart from societies moving seasonally uh, and varying social structures seasonally, you've also got these examples, wonderful examples of societies who are based on the same kind of mode of production, if you like, you know, you, you, you use that language in order to critique it, um, or the same kind of livelihood who are actually um, have got completely different social structures living right side by side, right? You right know? side by side, yeah. Well, yeah. You're, you're, Tell you're us about thinking, the North, yes. the North American uh, examples, yeah, the Fisher foragers. I know what you have in mind, um, which is really the, um, the history of, of indigenous peoples along the west coast of North America, which traditionally are divided into what anthropologists call culture areas, we used to call culture areas. Uh, the Californian culture area and the culture area of the, uh, the Northwest Coast. And much as you say, uh, it's been known for a very, very long time, over a century, that hunter-gatherer societies in both regions display profoundly different social and ethical uh, uh, characteristics. So the Northwest Coast ones are often compared to medieval feudal barons living in ranked households. Uh, they do keep a uh, actually hereditary, did keep hundreds of years ago, hereditary slaves. There was a lot of raiding and warfare. Um, and they throw these incredibly uh, elaborate uh, banquets, known in the anthropological literature as potlatch. Um, Californians, their neighbours just to the south, um, are really quite the opposite. Uh, being a leader is about being frugal. Uh, it's even reflected in um, the fact that people have to be particularly thin and work very hard and very publicly and show that they're hardworking. Um, there have even been comparisons between Californian foragers and the kind of Protestant work ethic that's found in Europe uh, in the run-up to uh, capitalism. But the question was just almost never asked. We discovered to our astonishment how these two uh, almost polar opposite kind of societies ended up um, living next to each other. What is the process by which that happens? And in one of the chapters of the book, we try and put together the anthropological evidence, uh, oral histories, which are actually very rarely used, it seems, uh, and the archaeological evidence to try and reconstruct some of this process. And what you find is that this is very self-conscious, um, and this brings us back also to the seasonality arguments. What we're seeing here are not complex hunter-gatherers, you know, who are just slight variations on each other. We're seeing societies which are very consciously constructing their own futures uh, and reconfiguring households and family relations in order to make sure that certain things do or do not happen, in this case, slavery, which basically um, falls away as you transition from the Northwest Coast cultural zone, there's a, there's a book by a historian called Leland Donald called Aboriginal Slavery on the Northwest Coast, where he documents with great statistical rigor 
um, you know, the rates of slavery and that sort of thing. And it just drops off as you get into California. And we go into some of the processes by which this took place. Um, but it's, it's kind of essentially the same point with seasonality that, you know, if you're stepping into and out of uh, one kind of social skin, if you like, at another time of year, you can also reflect back on that other kind of society or even imagine what it might be to live all the time in a society with powerful leaders and kings and queens and then choose not to do that or to confine those things to uh, ritual seasons, which is actually something we find uh, on the northwest coast uh, as well. And th this was really a really a sort of major realisation in the early stages of writing uh, The Dawn of Everything is just how much that potential for self-conscious transformation has been written out. It's been taken out of the way we write about human prehistory and often in the same breath how Europeans write about non-European peoples in general. So just learning to recognise the ways in which people we've been taught to think of as sort of childlike or just adapting to their environment were yeah. politically creative, um, actually in ways that we, we would find very difficult to emulate. You have this, uh, the, the Rousseauian myth, which we, you know, we often think about Rousseau and the noble savage, but you talk about Rousseau and the myth of the stupid savage, you know, because exactly. that's yeah. well, so, I mean, it means once you make this step, you know, it means you can do away with all those silly old questions about Hobbes and Rousseau and are humans innately this or innately that? Are we egalitarian? Are we really hierarchical? Are we really altruistic or competitive? No, I mean, actually what makes us sapiens uh, is exactly our ability to navigate mm. between these kinds of possibilities. And this changes the nature of the question, doesn't it? Mm. So we're no longer asking, you know, if humans for most of our history were moving between different social arrangements, putting up hierarchies, taking them down, doing it again, then the real question can't be what are the origins of social inequality? The real question is, how do we get stuck? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to come back to that, but I think there's a couple of other issues which are just so um, so brilliant in the book, which would be great to talk about a little bit. Um, what is the issue of um, uh, scale? You know, um, mm. you, you make us completely rethink scale. Um, if for ages we've been thinking about, you know, hunter-gatherers living in these small-scale groups and then the various technological advances ma making the world a place in which we are much more connected on larger and larger scales, you're actually in the book making the opposite argument, right? That, in fact, as populations have got larger, most people are living their lives on an ever smaller scale. In social terms, that's right. Right, um, yes. Social worlds, in fact. Um, that's right. And actually... People who have read the book so far, this seems to be one of their favourite bits, is basically where we pick apart uh, all these myths about scale. Um, I mean, I guess the, the basic idea in much of the existing literature is that here we are, wandering around in this modern, very complex world, but still between our ears is this evolved hunter-gatherer brain, which isn't really wired for it. So we need all these props and scaffolding and all these institutional hierarchies uh, we need we need politicians, we need bureaucrats, we need judges and enforcers just to keep it all together, just to stop everything getting overloaded and, and just sort of sinking into chaos. Um, but of course, the key thing there is what do you mean by a hunter-gatherer 
brain. And actually, if you look at the latest studies in Journal of Human Evolution, the latest demographic studies of modern hunter-gatherers, it's actually really fascinating. What they conclude is that actually these groups uh, do not live in small-scale societies at all. We're talking here about groups like the Matu in Australian Western Desert or Tanzanian Hadza. Actually, what they find is that people living in these societies maintain close relations or potential relations way beyond their immediate circle of family, often even beyond their language group. So we're talking about people who potentially you could marry, people who you would be obliged to offer hospitality to if they came along from one day from far away. Um, this may not happen in practice, but the key point in evolutionary terms is that members of these ostensibly very small societies are also holding in their minds an image of a vastly larger social network. And the archaeology really bears this out, because actually what you find before cities in the archaeological record are not these isolated pockets of human beings, but these grand sort of coalitions of societies that often span whole continents. And they're held together exactly by these norms of ritual hospitality. So when cities do eventually begin to appear in various parts of the world from around 5,000 years ago, it, it almost looks more like a process of contraction uh, than expansion. It's like one of these grand regional confederacies or coalitions getting concentrated in a single spot or a few spots. There's certainly no great sort of psychological rupture that might suddenly oblige people to give up all their social freedoms and appoint great leaders. Uh, and actually, that's exactly what you find when you look directly now at the evidence. And there's so much new evidence just over the last 20 or 30 years for what the first cities in the world on various different continents were actually like. This is what you find. It's not uniform. Some of them are incredibly hierarchical, uh, but a surprising number of others are not. Actually, it, it's, yeah, it's amazing. You know, you're, you're, you take us to these cities in Mesopotamia, yeah. in the Ukraine, in China, and what you show us is these egalitarian cities. And uh, you're like, wait, 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 what? You know, how is that possible, David? Egalitarian cities. Uh, well, that's a, that's a great example of how we work together. You know, in this particular case, it was David just posing the question to me. Uh, so are there any egalitarian, you know, anything like an egalitarian city in, um, in, in the history, you know, in the archaeological record? And I started telling him about these settlements north of the Black Sea and what today is Ukraine and Moldova. Um, which are astonishing. Um, they look like these great sort of circles of tree rings of houses, all roughly the same size. They're massive. They're five, they start about 5,000 years ago, so they're as old as the first cities in Mesopotamia. They're roughly the same size in terms of total area. There's lots of arguments, as you can imagine, exactly how many thousands of people lived in them, but even conservative estimates we're talking about probably tens of thousands of people. But there's simply no evidence for monarchy or public buildings or central storage or administration or even just marked uh, inequalities of wealth. So he said, oh, well, that'll do. And I said, yeah, but nobody calls them cities. Well, why don't they call them cities? I said, well, because there's no public buildings or 
monarchy as well, central government. I mean, it's an entirely logically circular thing that, you know, one assumes that the nature of a city is to be hierarchical. Therefore, even if you get a settlement the size of a city that isn't hierarchical, you can't call it a city. So, you know, it, it's a classic example of, of bad reasoning. Um, so we just call them cities, basically, and then adduce other examples, particularly from the Americas, but also South Asia. Uh, the earlier uh, Harappan civilization of Pakistan and the Indus Valley um, is is uh, is very interesting in this respect. So, yeah, I mean, we won't have time to go into it all now. But, but yeah, we're ranging all over the world. You're bringing Mind Jadaro uh, at that point too. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's move on to gender. Um, um, you know, gender. You you make these remarkable revelations about gender too the bronze age was supposed to bring about patriarchy but you show us extraordinary possibilities lots of things happening neolithic matriarchies we don't don't make the case actually for neolithic matriarchies it's funny how this is very interesting because um people often say there was an archaeologist called um maria gimbertas Yes, it's often claimed makes the made the argument uh, that Neolithic societies were matriarchal. Actually, she never did. She was very careful to say that they weren't actually matriarchal. She she basically just argued that in the Neolithic societies she knew best, and she was a really a world expert on uh, the Balkan region and the prehist- later prehistory of the Balkan region. Um, that women had. Um, autonomy from men and a certain priority in the ritual sphere. Um, And um, it's very interesting what happened to her work and her reputation, uh, largely after she passed away in the 1990s. Um, I guess she she was sort of vilified for even raising the topic of um, what was women's status in in the household in Neolithic times. This is a real problem uh, for us because, as as you've inferred, um, the question, how did we get stuck? The answer is not agriculture. We won't go into that now, I expect, but that's not why we got stuck. We spend a couple of chapters explaining that's not the reason. It's not cities. It's not as if these big seasonal agglomerations suddenly fixed into cities and you know these are all silly simple stories Um, but we're interested in what human beings actually got up to which invariably is it's more complicated but a lot more interesting but gender relations um, are actually pretty fundamental to this question of how we got stuck in hierarchical patterns of authority that we see today Uh, I mean it can't be purely coincidental that virtually all of the ancient kingdoms and empires that we know of up until modern times have taken the patriarchal household as their basic political model of governance. So the king is the father of his people, king rules the land much as he manages his domestic estate. Um, The question is how and when did that happen? But partly because the whole issue of gender in prehistory has become so loaded, almost taboo in some ways, Um, it's very, very difficult to get scholars to engage in that conversation. The fact is, if you actually look at the latest research, uh, some of the best research from the region that Gimbutas was familiar with uh, comes from a site called Çatal Hüyük in central Turkey. Uh, Actually, what they found out is that men and women 
do seem to have enjoyed fairly equal treatment in terms of things like diet and health. Uh, some of the art focuses on female elders. Women are very visible, uh, visible in the uh, in the ritual sphere, not to the exclusion of men, but not encompassed by men either. Now, that's not to say we're dealing with a matriarchal society, um, but it doesn't look much like a patriarchal society uh, either. Um, and, you know, as you say, as for the question of whether women's freedoms sort of inevitably eroded with the rise of cities and states, yes, clearly at times that happened. Actually, David wrote a lot about it in his book on debt, um, but it certainly wasn't universal. The problem seems to be, and this is something we go into at various points in the book, is that the way history is written seems almost designed to make periods of women's freedom or relative freedom invisible. Mm. I could give you examples if you like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks, David. I mean, somewhere, I mean, so, okay, so what's wonderful about the book is, you know, you've shown us that infinitely more possibilities for how we've lived in the world that people were you know self-consciously thinking about their social structures and making them and creating them and and we were moving between different forms and but somewhere along the way right as you say things did go wrong um uh, we mm. can't swap and change anymore in in the same way that we might have in the past perhaps only the wealthy can alternative alternate between being you know living seasonally and having different social structures seasonally I mean what, mm. so what where did where have things gone wrong what did go wrong um uh yeah um let's maybe we can come to some of some of those uh, arguments well this is a this this is not a simple argument but the other major element uh, I would say aside from gender uh, is violence um and um, I mean, first of all, we just have to rule out the sort of Hobbesian premise that prehistoric societies were innately or perennially violent. There's actually very good statistical evidence for things like violent death rates and injury rates on Paleolithic skeletons. And it just doesn't hold up uh, even in later periods. Yes, you know, you get periods of intense intergroup warfare, but then you get long periods of peace. So you know, the warfare competition, it's no more deeply rooted uh, in evolutionary terms than the opposite. It's deeply rooted and no more or less. Now, this raises the question of why it is that in some cases, violence does have lasting, durable effects, structural effects on societies, and why in other cases it doesn't so much. And what seemed really important to us here, another kind of pattern that emerged out of our research is that this has a lot to do with when systems of violence get mixed up with what you might call systems of care. Um, I know that sounds a bit abstract, but uh, just to give you one brief example, there's a whole series of uh, unrelated cases from Shang China to uh, early dynastic Egypt, Mesoamerica, where the appearance of monarchies for the first time is associated with these rituals. You know, the ones uh, Morris Bloch is uh, slightly obsessed by, where you have extraordinary amounts of violence, literally hundreds of non-royal people being killed and buried around a royal tomb. Uh, it's all part of a big ritual performance. And the ultimate aim of the performance is actually to care for someone. It's to care for the deceased king, to beautify him or her in death, make her into an ancestor. 
And interestingly, these kind of mass killings um, nearly always seem to take place at the point where monarchies come into being and then they taper off. But somehow they seem crucial to that initial rupture where ritual chiefs or play kings, as David liked to call them, stop being play kings and they obtain real sovereignty uh, over, the, over the living. Um, and we have lots of other discussions and examples in the book about how that particular nexus between violence and care uh, leads to the loss of basically social freedoms which are otherwise um, quite widespread and, and taken for granted in many human societies. Yeah, and, and, and I guess one of the points you really draw out in the book is this is nothing to do with like modes of the, uh, uh, the political economy, nothing to do with modes of production, nothing to do with livelihoods. And so I guess one of the obvious questions is, you know, what about capitalism? <laughs> I mean, you know, mm. which is, it, it, have we you know can we create all of these different social structures under under and um, you know much more egalitarian models under capitalism you know? well, it depends what, what you mean by by capitalism you know as you know better than i do uh, david made i think a very persuasive argument that that we're not in capitalism at the moment we're in something that he called managerial feudalism so we have to be clear what we're arguing about you know, when we say capitalism yeah, sure. Well, that's one we can take up uh, later, mm. perhaps. But let's move to freedoms. You know, you you mm. um, because I think you really make some really interesting, um, in very very. One of the things you read the book and then you realize actually, you know, what you're reading about, what you're what you're setting up is 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 another way for us a project of freedom, a kind of a a. a a way for us to think about freedom and why actually the central questions we should be asking is what is are, are not to do with inequality and equality but to do with freedom and you re make us rethink what this freedom is and what freedom ought to be right and it would be really great to to hear here interesting uh, because a, a lot of societies that have been described as egalitarian including kandirong's own society in the eastern woodlands um were not egalitarian in, the, in that material sense. In fact, they don't seem to have cared that much about if anyone's got more stuff than anyone else. What really seemed to matter, what really comes across in that, in going back to that indigenous critique, is freedoms, personal freedoms, personal autonomy, including women's freedoms. Um, and we really have to go back, I think, to those points and, and look at the implications. I mean, it really struck us that something something strange has happened in the sense that no serious person in our fields of archaeology and anthropology would be caught today saying, I believe that, you know, all human societies have evolved through these stages from bands to tribes and chiefdoms and states and whatever. Um, but at the same time, almost everyone continues using the terms, you know, with scare quotes and anyone outside those disciplines still more or less assumes that that is the default story of, of human uh, social evolution. And we felt that one of the reasons for this is simply because there is no other conceptual framework which is as kind of encompassing and as elegant, frankly, as, as that one, except that it's completely wrong. So in the book, we do try to lay some foundations, not in a dogmatic way. Uh, you know, this is the beginning of a process. And actually, this does take us back to Kandirog. 
I mean, you could imagine Candiaronk and Rousseau maybe agreeing on the virtues of freedom and personal autonomy, uh, but only uh, Candiaronk would have actually had any clue what it means in practice to live in a society where most people have not been trained into obedience the way that we all have. As David used to joke, uh, you know, the closest that Jean-Jacques Rousseau ever got to a society of equals was probably someone giving out equal slices of cake at a dinner party. Um, so if we want to understand, you know, back to your question, what's been lost, what's gone wrong in societies today, then it does seem instructive to look at those basic freedoms that societies like the Wendat, but also many others, seem to have taken for granted. And we identified three, three elementary freedoms which we, we suggest were once common to much of humanity. Now, in the next two minutes, uh, I could attempt to tell you what they are. I, you have to, David. The first freedom is the, the freedom to move away move away from one's social surroundings, escape on social surroundings, knowing that you will be welcomed and valued in another place. This is what underpins those great coalitions, those great prehistoric coalitions of societies that I was talking about. Second freedom, to disobey arbitrary commands, knowing that you will not be ostracized, but attended to, listened, debated. This is what underpinned the kind of deliberative politics of Native American societies that so impressed European thinkers at the time of the Enlightenment. And the third freedom is the freedom to create entirely new and different forms of society uh, or move between uh, alternatives, uh, as with those seasonal variations that I talked about, uh, but of course not just that, many, many other things uh, as well. Mm. Um, so those are the basic, uh, basic freedoms. We have basic forms of domination too, um, but I don't think we're going to have time to go into them. No, I think um, this hopeful note about freedom and, and, and your redefinition of freedoms, and I know you're drawing on a long history of, of thinking about this, but yes, is a, is a wonderful place for us to hand back to Chico um, to maybe take us and open up the q and I'm sure people are really waiting to ask questions. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much, Alpa. I enjoyed it. Yes, well, thank you both. And indeed, there are a number of questions uh, already here. Um, maybe we can come back to the taxonomy of forms of domination um, a little bit later. Uh, but let me, uh, I actually had some questions of my own, but, uh, but there are so many great questions here that let me just uh, launch straight to them. Um, and uh, is it all right with you, uh, uh, David, if I group them into groups of two? As long as Alpa promises to help me answer them. Okay. I won't do three, but I'll do two. Uh, and then uh, it, maybe you can start and then Alpa can comment as well. Before I start with the questions, let me just, um, let me just acknowledge here that Andrea Mordaunt, who is a social policy alumna and also worked at Occupy, reminds us that it's the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement on Friday, the 15th and applauds uh, any recognition of David Graeber uh, and his work since he was a supporter. Now, that was not a question. That was just something I wanted to acknowledge. Let me, let me start with some, some questions here. There's one from uh, Gabriela Cabagna, who's a PhD student uh, at the anthropology department here. Uh, she says, could you comment more on the historical emergence 
of relations of domination in the most intimate spaces and even in relations of care. It's hard to interpret something so subtle from archaeological remains, she says, but surely it's a direction to explore more in dialogue with social anthropology. Mm. So that's, uh, that's one. And then the, the next one in this batch is from Rose Pravda, uh, who says, Rose, just a worker of the world. Do you talk about stories, discourses about the origins or meaning of civilization from those historical civilizational cores or their neighbors? Do these stories, discourses have anything interesting to say about the relationship between humans and animals? Okay, so with those, over to you, David. Thank you, I think. Um, yes, uh, Gabby's question about relations of domination within the household Um We felt that uh, a particularly important thinker in this respect was the uh, mid-20th century social anthropologist, Franz Steiner, um, who is a rather overlooked figure. We talk about him in the conclusion uh, to the book, but he wrote an immense thesis. Actually, I have a, a printout of it up here on my shelf about what he called pre-servile institutions, pre-servile institutions. And he was exactly interested in this question of how hierarchy takes root in the household. So this is not an archaeological treatise. In fact, there's very little archaeological evidence to speak of when he wrote it. But the kind of questions he raised, um, and he himself uh, was made a refugee from Central Europe, so he, he knew what he was talking about when he drew particular attention to effectively what happens when the first of our freedoms freedom to move away and be welcomed somewhere else when that breaks down. What happens when these norms of hospitality and asylum uh, uh, collapse? Um, and how is that so often a stepping stone towards forms of domination within societies? And he produced uh, an extraordinary range of examples from different cultures, different points uh, of history um, to elaborate uh, on that fact, which, which he felt was fundamental. Um, but I completely agree with the, you know, the nature of the question. It's exactly the kind of area that could shed light on some things like the, the roots of patriarchy and really deserves a, a lot more focused uh, research. So we, we do have a fair bit more on it in the book, but it's, it's certainly one of the points that we would have developed uh, a great deal. And hopefully other people will, will take that up. Oh, the other question. Well, civilization. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. I, I, actually, one of the ways David and I started working together is that he read uh, a very genuinely small book that I wrote uh, called What Makes uh, Civilization? It's about the ancient uh, Middle East, Egypt and Mesopotamia and the whole concept of civilization. And we do have a bit of an aside on this in The Dawn of Everything, where we basically argue that there's something fundamentally weird about our concept of civilization, which on the one hand is supposed to mean being civil and sort of being polite and, and being congenial to each other. But when you look at the things that people call civilizations in history, they're often exactly the opposite. They're, you know, brutal <laughs> slaveholding societies, empires, um, you know, the ancient Romans, Han China, uh, monuments everywhere. These are meant to be civilizations. So there's something strange and paradoxical about that. And actually, other anthropologists like uh, Marcel Moss, who was a great inspiration to David uh, and myself, 
tried to change the use of the term civilization so that instead of referring to these societies that are held together by military means, effectively by coercion, uh, we should talk instead about those great coalitions, those voluntary coalitions that hold people together over enormous areas through things like uh, hospitality and feeding each other and caring for each other. Why not call those civilizations, most argued uh, in part? Which is also a point about gender, because very often the, um, the things that the people who are responsible for all of that hospitality uh, are women, um, whereas the people responsible for all the great stone monuments uh, proclaiming how great they are historically have tended to be men often appropriating the uh, intellectual achievements uh, of, of women. So the whole concept of civilization, uh, I would have thought at this point, it's probably not going to go away. You know, it keeps getting reinvented in, in myriad ways. But I think we, we can probably do better than we currently do uh, in defining it. I'm sorry, I haven't got to the point about humans and animals, um, but I, I could do unless you want to move on to another question. Or unless it's another question that touches on human yeah, animal relations. Let me ask you another, another couple uh, of questions, and then maybe either you or Alpha can go back to the humans and animals. Mm. Like. Um, but here are, are two that um, I'm quite curious about. One from Sirdar Erden from Glasgow. How does David see the current decolonization of curriculum movement? Some critics pointed out that this movement is still Eurocentric and lacks local context too. Can this movement broaden our perspective on history and the concept of the West? That's one. The other one, which I quite like, is a very short question. Any examples from Africa? Mm -hmm. Examples of? I mean, you spoke of many things from many places, but nothing seemed to have been from Africa, I think, is what's motivating the question. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's true. Uh, we, uh, we focus in this book um, on the Americas, um, and particularly for those reasons that I've emphasized. Um, it became, in ways that we hadn't anticipated, uh, a book with uh, um, a focus on that particular encounter with indigenous peoples of the Americas, and then reading that back uh, into the, uh, the archaeological evidence from other parts of the world, including Africa. So uh, we have extensive sections on ancient Egypt, uh, for example. But I'm aware, um, actually, that's where most of my fieldwork and research is. And David was also uh, an Africanist. He was a specialist in the anthropology of Madagascar. Um, there are innumerable other examples from the sub-Saharan region um, where one could explore all of these concepts. And what we'd hope to do uh, is, is exactly that. Uh, write more books, write a number of sequels, at least three, um, and, and uh, adduce more examples. Um, decolonization is something that I, I see up close. It's happening on my own campus, at uh, my own uh, institute. Um, and uh, I, I see it as something um, basic and fundamental, um, particularly to the disciplines that David and I belong to, archaeology and anthropology, are completely rooted in the history of colonialism and colonial thought, as I think will be very apparent from all of the material that I've discussed. You know, the idea that 
indigenous peoples who are still with us have nothing much to tell us except about some you know, remote uh, epoch in human prehistory is itself a direct uh, outcome uh, of colonial mindsets and colonialism. Um, the idea that they're systems of property. Actually, this brings us back to human-animal relations. The idea that they're systems of property and land management have nothing to teach us um, is itself also a direct product of the thinking of people like John Locke, you know, back in the 17th century, the agricultural argument that if you don't cultivate wheat and mix your hands in the soil the same way that we do, somehow you have no curatorship of that uh, territory. Um, whereas, in fact, um, there's probably an enormous amount that we could learn from other ways of owning and caring for uh, land and resources. Uh, one example that we go into in the book, which touches exactly on this issue of human relations to the non-human world, um, are societies that have sometimes been described as totemic in the anthropological literature, particularly in North America uh, and also uh, Australia, where um, a group owns its totem. But the implication of that is precisely different from our notion of ownership uh, and our notion of what it means to have full ownership which is very much rooted in the Roman tradition and Roman law, something that Orlando Patterson, the Jamaican sociologist, wrote extensively about, where full ownership in the European legal sense is the right of abusus, I think is the Latin term, which is exactly what it sounds like, abuse. It's the right to commoditize, buy, sell, turn, in, turn someone or something into property, uh, I mean, these are traditions rooted in slave law, as Patterson uh, argues. Um, whereas in these totemic systems, ownership has exactly the opposite connotation. Uh, a clan owns its totem, which is usually an animal species. And what that means is precisely that they can't hunt it and eat it and kill it. They have to nurture it. They have to create a uh, an environment in which it can thrive and reproduce. So concepts of ownership um, that are actually based on uh, caretaking uh, as opposed to extraction uh, have worked, as we can see now archaeologically uh, as well, uh, not just in primitive small-scale societies, but actually on really impressive uh, scales, uh, large demographic scales prior to the colonial era. It's colonialism and the, the effects of genocide, pandemics, epidemics, um, that really warps our picture of what these societies uh, were actually like. But we can now begin to correct that picture. So decolonizing the curriculum um, is, is simply a matter of good science. You know, it's, it's a matter of getting the facts right. One of the interesting things, sorry to, can I, uh, can you hear me? <laughs> I'm just interjecting here. One of the interesting things that we've talked about, David, about decolonization and this book is how, you know, so many of the arguments you're making, right, just are, are about let's look at what Indigenous societies were actually like. Well, let's look at what Indigenous scholars are saying. Let's, you know, you, you, 
instead of Rousseau and Hobbes, you, you know, you, 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 you make us focus on Kandyarank and what he has to say. And throughout the book, there are these people who have been marginalized in various ways. Maria Gimbertus, Franz Steiner, you know, you're, you're drawing our attention to these people who had some really interesting things to say about human history. Um, and who've been forgotten or sidelined and, and you're centering them. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about, David, which is so, in, you know, is, 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 is so, um, fascinating in relation to this question of decolonization is it it takes two white men to write a book like this you know to make those voices heard um so there's some kind of ironies in how this whole thing you know decolonizing curriculum works yeah i mean it's something we talk about in um near the beginning of the book you know the prevailing view that um Western philosophy couldn't possibly have been influenced to that extent by indigenous intellectuals. Um, and therefore that um, it's strange. It's almost like a kind of inverse racism. You know, this idea that Europeans must have made it all up. Anything and everything that's attributed to an indigenous thinker or an indigenous intellectual must be a fabrication or a fantasy. Because how, how could people who are engaged in genocide possibly have been listening to people they were effectively wiping out or colluding in, in wiping them out. Um, and, but the effect is almost a sort of arrogant uh, assumption that European or Western uh, uh, systems of thought are somehow so impervious to outside influences. Um, do you see what I mean? Um, so it ends up, uh, although, you know, these are well-intentioned points, um, against the romanticization of non-European peoples, turning people into noble savages or whatever it may be, they end up almost doing the reverse uh, and creating this illusion of, of, of European uh, uh, philosophy, European science as this kind of hermetically sealed thing. Mm. Um, so really what we're dealing with in the book is the... Um, the business as we see it, as you say, uh, being who we are, of trying to undo some of the conceptual damage uh, that's been done by writing out those debts uh, that what we regard as Western civilization owes uh, to other people and other traditions. Um, that's, that's where we've focused our work, uh, drawing on a whole range of scholars uh, some of indigenous descent, some not. Mm. Much through dialogue as well. There's a question about dialogue, but yes, yeah. Yes, let's get to some of those uh, other questions. So, so here's one got a lot of likes. Um, it is, although the context is, of course, overtly authoritarian, would you consider that the world slipping into lockdowns post-COVID to be a modern instance of dramatically changing or shifting entire social structures? In the sense that even if authoritarian, if even authoritarians can enact such changes today, doing so in more democratic ways is not actually that unrealistic in the face mm -hmm. of COVID. That's a COVID and uh, modern examples of, uh, of your seasonal changes in social structure. The second one uh, is from, that's from Yash Ladd, the one I just read. The one from George Turner here. There's a slight paradox or bitter sweetness in coming to understand the scope of human possibilities. 
whilst deconstructing the myths of impossibility can be empowering and hopeful, can also leave us feeling disappointed that we have not and may never come to realize these possibilities. Myths, uh, he says, can be profoundly comforting in allowing us to dismiss our lack of freedom as inevitable uh, because it absolves us of responsibility. So with these myths, myths destroyed, how do we cultivate and nurture collective comfort despite our pointless, unnecessary, and wasteful unfreedom? So it sounds like your book will, will throw people into depression and despair by destroying those myths. So how do you avoid that by cultivating and nurturing? Yeah, we, we've, we've already had a bit of that. You know, we, we wrote uh, essays and also scholarly uh, papers for scholarly journals um, over the years that we were preparing the book. So we already sort of had a flavor of this. Of, actually, it's usually other academics. It's not other readers of our work who, who seem quite uplifted by what we're saying quite often, but a lot of academics seem to get depressed. It's like, well, you've taken away our myth, you know, you've taken away our nice, simple story, and it's, it's, it's annoying, and, and you haven't given us another one, but, you know, that, that's the whole point. Uh, we're not in the business of making up fairy tales. We're, we're archaeologists and anthropologists trying to understand um, this, you know, very complex and hard to interpret uh, record of scientific evidence. Um, it is, you know, the fact that you can summarize what you might call the, uh, the old story of, of the origins of inequality in about two sentences um, is about as clear an indication as you could hope for that we are in the realm of myth, the realm of fables and fairy tales. No sensible uh, account of the broad sweep of human history is going to fit into a tweet, but the old one does. So that's a bit of a giveaway. So I, th I think, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a debate to be had there about um, the place of myth. I don't think myth itself is the problem. All societies have them, just as all societies have their own versions of science. Um, but the kind of myths that we've been relying on for two and a half centuries now I think are, first of all, terribly boring. Uh, you know, seeing them again and again and again. And particularly at this time when uh, I think any sane person can see that as a species, we face some very serious challenges. And those are challenges precisely about what we call the third freedom. You know, can we actually remake our societies in some structurally significantly different form that could potentially make a difference to something like the Earth system or rates of global poverty. Um, sorry, how did I get onto this? Oh, yeah. Um, well, if you keep telling yourself a, a myth, a fable, a story about human history that basically drums into your head that the forces of history and evolution are against you, that everything we have now is somehow preordained or inevitable, the kind of teleology, teleological logic of the rational skeptic that Alpa was talking about right at the, uh, the beginning of our chat um, is not helpful and it's also not true. Um, so I think it is time probably to abandon some of these very shock-worn myths, stop this kind of Hobbes Rousseau back and forth um, and actually look again at, at the evidence which is there. David, let me, that's great. Let me interrupt you there before we get back to the COVID question, just because this is the perfect sort of segue into the question that I had wanted to ask you, um, which is that in the beginning of the book, you, you know, you, you sort of uh, very effectively uh, 
destroy the two the, the dichotomy of of you know Hobbes and, and Rousseau and the, the noble savage or, and the nasty and British in short. Um, but then one one of the arguments against them is you say they have dire political implications. Um, and so now when you're answering this question, you say we've taken away our myths and you haven't given us another one. And yet, is it true that you haven't given us another one? Because uh, it seems very clear that you did want to have a political implication with your book um, that wasn't dire. Uh, so that's part A of the question. What is the political implication that isn't dire? And the second one is, if it is the possibility that we can create this new forms of society because there is no preordained, predetermined trajectory from either the fall from Rousseau or the rise from Hobbes, then on the other hand, you know, you lay out quite clearly, they say, well, these societies weren't good or bad. They were human, much like human. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of everything. There's going to be some selfishness, some uh, uh, love of equity, some preference for equity, uh, some order, some chaos. But if that's the case, then by what, you know, a simple-minded economist like me would call the law of large numbers. That is, we've been trying this for millennia, right? What is there to suggest that we would be able to overcome the bad parts? Uh, you know, what is there to suggest? Perhaps it's climate change. Perhaps it's being faced by the demise of the world. But, you know, what is there to suggest that we can actually bring ourselves together in ways that we have never done before? To create, uh, to create a utopia? Well, first of all, I, I don't personally think utopia is the point. Um, the point is precisely that we're not talking about utopias. If you start with a myth and a completely fantastic notion of you know, where human societies originate and how they develop, then all you can produce is utopias because they're sort of built on sand, they're built on nothing. There's a reason the book is 700 pages long and copiously referenced. It's because we're we don't want to do that. We're serious about this stuff. And I'm just trying to understand your question properly, Chico. When you say we've been trying this for millennia, what is it you think we've been trying? To order our social lives. Yes. Ah, all right. Um, I mean, I think for me, this would have to come back to the, the question about decolonization, because at least for the last few hundred years, I think um, there's been a very obvious, you know, enormously well-documented effort on the part of uh, some states and societies to do the opposite, to create disorder um, and to conquer and own. And uh, I mean, the whole history of the last few centuries, I think, um, uh, is quite difficult to interpret as an attempt to order society. It seems to have been about something else. But don't, wouldn't you say, as I really don't want to, because now I abuse my prerogative as chair, but just give me one moment to sort of push you a little, a little bit on this. I mean, you might say that, you know, the British were definitely trying to disorganize and create chaos in all their colonies, as were the French and many others, but perhaps they were trying to organize things at home, at least, and create something. Now, it may have been a mess, may have been a monarchy, but there were parliaments, there was all sorts of things. Whether this is fully Western and entirely Western, I'm not sure. I mean, you guys would know much better than me, but it would seem to me that the Chinese empires from 
many centuries ago probably did the same. Or the, the Mongolian empires or the Genghis Khan and others, they, they mm. probably try to organize their own existences in some way, which might have been terrible or not. Um, and they uh, didn't really give a damn about anybody else and created chaos everywhere else. I mean, the notion of order. You know, the Aztecs are, are reported to have done this mm. to other peoples uh, in the Mexican peninsula. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I suspect, you know, you know, the Malian Empire of old um, may have well done that to their neighbors. So it, to me, it just goes back. And I, I don't know that I fully believe what I'm about to say, but just for the sake of argument here, there's something about human nature uh, that means we oscillate between this good and bad. It's almost like your seasonality that Alpo was mentioning. Um, and, and, and so, so, yeah, just is there something that's not a myth that can tell us we can do it really differently? Well, the point of the book really is that um, the, the evidence of human history tells us precisely that. I mean, the kind of order that you seem to be talking about there is, is really order through violence, if I understand you correctly. Um, and, you know, this, this comes back to a question that, that is often put to me. Say, well, you know, if you're right, um, and there's nothing inevitable about the trajectory that we, we find ourselves on these days, how is it that the world is covered from end to end with, uh, with nation states? You know, uh, in some way coercive um, and have these kind of extraordinary uh, powers. You know, surely this must be somehow the result of thousands of years of, of human social evolution. Now, if you're a scientist uh, or a historian, um, you're supposed to go for the, the simplest explanation, you know, the, what scientists call the, the most parsimonious one. And the most parsimonious one that requires the fewest logical leaps is that the reason that much of the earth, many of the countries and regions that you refer to, are covered with nation states that look a bit like European ones is because Europeans put them there, uh, largely at the point of a gun. Um, that's a pretty compelling explanation. It's a hell of a lot more complicated and difficult to try and explain it uh, as the outcome of thousands of years of cultural evolution, going back to the agricultural revolution and the origin of cities, you get into all sorts of logical and factual difficulties, which we try to unpick in the book. Um, and that in itself, I think, uh, um, gives a different perspective on where we find ourselves, if that's at all helpful as, as an answer. Yeah, but the Aztecs, they couldn't have been put there by the Europeans, could they? Did I suggest they were? Well, I just said the logical leap, the, 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 the explanation that required the least logical leaps is that the Europeans put them there, which I can see in many, many cases. But I don't, I don't, I don't follow the logic. The, the Aztec uh, Triple Alliance was, was there before Europeans. There's no question about that. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, we could continue, but may have, we'll have to do that in the pub. Let me see if there's any, any uh, one more chance for a question here. Um, Yeah, let's get to the one that 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 um, that that um, Alpa had also noted. So, so Scott Thompson asks, David, I guess he means Graeber here. Always stress the importance of dialogue. Great ideas emerge dialogically from the relations between people, as this book emerged from a prolonged conversation between the two Davids. 
How important is dialogue to the structure of the book and to a new history of mankind? Mm. Thank you. It's a really interesting question. Um, that's right. The, the, David liked this idea um, that um, I think is, is now quite sort of soundly demonstrated in, in neuroscience, that if you try and hold an idea in your head, you know, your window of concentration is absolutely minute. But when you talk to somebody about it, our capacity to actually focus on a concept, unless you're, you know, some sort of highly trained individual, like a guru or a yogi or something, you can hold a thought for so long all by themselves as a particular skill. Um, but there's a reason, he pointed out, where so much ancient philosophy, not just in the European tradition, but in others, is presented in the form of dialogues. Um, and I think, you know, certainly the greatest privilege of, of my academic uh, career to have this incredibly protracted uh, dialogue with David Graeber, uh, who was somebody who would have dialogues with absolutely anybody and treated everybody uh, exactly the same. And I'm sure that was one of the, uh, you know, the sources of uh, the richness uh, of his own thinking. And uh, I think it is, we, we do try in the book to reconstruct I mean, the way the book's structured, which is slightly unorthodox, kind of reflects the evolution of that conversation uh, over a, a very long uh, time span. And of course, the whole idea of dialogue in the sense of Kandiranc and La Hontan and how things emerge from that uh, is terribly important as well. It's not something I thought much about before, but it, it probably is quite, quite a central theme. That's great. Um, we're almost at the end of the time. Unfortunately, there are lots more questions, uh, about 26 open at the moment, uh, which shows, you know, we had uh, 400 people at the, at the peak here. Um, a lot of interest uh, in this great book. Just before we end, I wonder if Alpa, you'd like to, to sort of say a few words. No, I, I just want to say thanks so much, um, David. Uh, for yeah for for kicking off you know setting afloat the book into the world and it's going to have many lives and afterlives and Chico thank you so much uh for chairing the event and I think yeah there's so much to your questions that we can um, take forward uh in further discussion um yeah and it's just been such a privilege and a pleasure to be a part of this event thank you so much Thank you very much, uh, Alpa in particular, and Chico for, for the chance to do this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, and let me just in conclusion thank um, everyone who attended, but particularly our speakers, um, Professor Alpa Shah and Professor David Wengro in particular, one of the two authors of the book. It is a fascinating book. I haven't been able to read all of it yet, but the beginning is absolutely fascinating and I will finish the book. Uh, it's an incredibly erudite and well-written uh, and compelling piece of work. So I urge all of you to buy it. And with that, thank you very much indeed to all of you and see you at our next event. Bye-bye.